Well, good evening, everybody. Happy Wednesday. We're in the middle of the week. The weatherman says fall is coming in reality. We live by faith and not by sight. <laughs> but uh, maybe fall is on the way. It's good to see all of you out tonight. A um, couple of housekeeping items. First of all, our sessions thus far and uh, from this point forward have been recorded. And you can find those on Second Baptist Church's Apple podcast. Uh, you can find that through uh, wherever podcasts are found. You can also find that through our church website. So if there's a podcast or a session you've missed uh, that you uh, want to go back and observe, you can access it that way. Or if uh, Senator Elliott says something tonight that merits further listening, you may want to do that as well. She's been known to do that. So I uh, just wanted you to know that's available to you. So in the month of September, we had Jamar Tisby with us talking about the history of uh, racism in our country and in particular the church's complicity in that. Uh, that's important because none of us are born into vacuums. Uh, there are reasons why things are the way they are and it's important for us to know that history and to claim that history, to repent of it where need be, and to make right uh, where need be. Tonight, first Wednesday in October, we're turning the page a little bit and changing formats a little bit because it is one thing to talk about racism in a historical manner, a sterile manner where we're two centuries removed from a given thing. But it's another thing altogether to think about how what has happened in our history is still living with us today and how we might think on that and address that today. And so that's what we hope to do over the next few Wednesday nights in October. Uh, tonight we're going to talk about uh, racism and education and in particular uh, what's going on in the LRSD. Uh, Senator Elliott and for the rest of you when we dreamed this up we did not know exactly how timely this conversation would be. But I am hard-pressed to think of a conversation that uh, is more worth having than the one we're having tonight. And I'm also hard-pressed to think of a person uh, who would be better suited to have this conversation with us uh, than the one who is with us. Uh, Senator Elliott is a native Arkansan. She was born in Willisville. Help me. I am not a city girl, just so everybody knows. Willisville is south of here about maybe a couple of hours. It's in Nevada County. And that's the way we said it down there, except my mama taught me Nevada, and I got in trouble for that. But it's in Nevada County. So if you've been from here, let's say, to Magnolia, you went right through it. You just didn't know it, but you did. <laughs> and when I was growing up, we had a population of like 205. And now it's posted, because I was just down there last week, they're posting when you drive through there now, and we, we have a caution light, but I think they turned it off. But um, it says 153. That is an exaggeration, y'all, I'm telling you. <laughs> but, but that's where I grew up, and that's in the deep. I grew up closer to Louisiana and Texas than I did to Little Rock, in other words, because we were way down in the southern part of the state. Speaking okay. of Magnolia, uh -huh. she went to Southern Arkansas University. 
which is in Magnolia, where she graduated with a degree in English. Mm -hmm. I did not know that about yeah. you. English and speech. English and speech. Mm -hmm. And uh, from there, she did master's work at Washita. We mm -hmm. have several tigers uh, in the pews tonight, I think, uh, doing graduate level work also in English. Let me tell you something real quickly about why I chose Washita. When I was decided to get a master's degree, I was interested in immigrant, immigrant literature. And I wanted to know about the literature of all of these other kind of people. That is the only place I found it. It was at Washita. It was fantastic. And I was so surprised to find it there. Because I got to study Jewish literature, Russian literature, um, uh, Japanese and Chinese literature, and then an assortment of others that we just had time to do. It was fabulous. So all the immigration stuff that's happening now, I was so far ahead of the curve. I've read a lot of that stuff. <laughs> just when yeah. I think I can't appreciate you more, you say something like yeah, that. Yeah, it was wonderful. Yeah, yeah. So from there, you became a public school teacher. Yes, yes. For 30 years. Yes. Taught years. AP classes in... Uh, English, uh -huh. I mm -hmm. assume. I did. Mm -hmm. And uh, really developed her passion for public education while mm -hmm. she was doing it. Mm -hmm. That's one of the things I've appreciated about uh, Senator Elliott is mm -hmm. uh, she speaks about public, public, public education from within it. Yes. And as one who knows what it's about, someone who's been in the classes, been with the students, knows uh, what makes a school a school. Mm -hmm. uh, she was elected to the House in... Uh, 2000 mm -hmm. and then to the Senate in 2008 uh, where she has been um, working uh, over at the Capitol mm -hmm. uh, doing great work in all sorts of ways but in particular when it comes to matters of education mm -hmm. I, I cannot think of a person I'm not aware of a person who's been a greater champion for public education than Joyce Elliott mm -hmm. and uh, I'm honored to call her a friend she serves uh, with me on the board at Just Communities of Arkansas, and seemingly everything that I care about, uh, she cares about too. Mm -hmm. And I look to her uh, for guidance and wisdom, and so we want you to know how grateful we are for you to be here tonight. Yeah. There are a gazillion things happening around the city tonight yeah. that she could have been involved mm -hmm. with, but has chosen yeah. to be with us tonight. Mm -hmm. So, oh, Well, thank you so much for having me. And thank all of you for coming, because you could be at one of those other jillions of things. And so I'm honored you're here and <laughs> not there. So, all right. Yeah. And just so you know a little bit about us, uh, we are a church that cares deeply about public education. Mm -hmm. And we're a church that has been heavily vested in the LRSD. Uh, in 1957, Second was very active in the desegregation of Little Rock Central. Mm -hmm. And in 1958, this is part of our history I don't know that we tell enough. In 1958, when the schools were shut down, mm -hmm. Second started an accredited high school. It was called Baptist High, oh, one of the first integrated yeah. schools in, Ar in the history of Arkansas. It was opera operational for one year. Mm. And ever since, all around this sanctuary on a Sunday morning, you will find administrators and teachers mm -hmm. and teachers of the year sprinkled, or Little Rock School District mm -hmm. teachers of the year sprinkled around the sanctuary. So we are a church that cares deeply about mm -hmm. the LRSD and public education. Great. So, Thank you. So tell us what we already know. But why, why are schools important to communities and communities mm -hmm. important mm -hmm. to schools? Talk mm -hmm. to us about the synergistic yeah. relationship between schools and communities. Uh, yeah, and, and that's a very good question. 
because when this country decided as a republic, we are a republic, but we decided our a method of government would be representational and it would be a democratic representative democracy here that we would have. And the schools were really important because as Thomas Jefferson said, you know, if it, you cannot have a successful democracy without an educated populace because people are so open and so susceptible to being used by tyrants and everybody else. In this case, I'm, think, I'm sure he was thinking King George the third. But um, so one of the big things that people decided to do is that if we were going to have good people who were represent representatives of the folks, we had to have education. But they didn't think it was meant for everybody. It was particularly then for white men. But as they began to progress, especially in the East, uh, on the East Coast, where rep uh, education became uh, more important more quickly, they knew for sure we were going to have um, communities that were successful. There's no such thing as a successful community where you don't have successful schools. The synergy is absolute. For example, if you want to look around Little Rock, and when somebody says, well, why are those schools getting these kind of grades or whatever, and that's a whole other story, because I do want to impress upon you, that is junk science, but that's further down the road here. Um, but every, if you look at a school that's doing well, guess what you're going to find doing well around that school? a community that's doing well. When you try to find, when you look for schools, and you don't have to look, schools that are not doing well, guess what? You're going to find a community around that school that's struggling as well. There will be a few times where you can come in, say it's a, a community that is marginalized and struggling, and it's not to say kids in those schools can't learn and can't learn at a high level, they can. And you can absolutely, for a while, create something that is absolutely fantastic and these kids are really excelling but very seldom is it sustained and when you talked about uh having discussed some of the reasons you know that we are as we are and the lecture you had before what i really want to impress upon people uh it's so important in this case for example to little rock if all of Little Rock is going to be successful, and we need to be, all of these schools need to, must be successful, or we're not going to have a city that remotely reaches its, its potential. None of us can build our walls high enough to say, our schools are okay, my kids are okay, so what am I to worry about? Number one, you have to worry about your stuff. Because people will come take your stuff if they're not getting an opportunity to make their own money to have their own stuff. It is so integrated into the opportunities people have. And I tell people all the time, see, sometimes, let's just say, let's pick a community that is doing well. And people say, well, um, we, don't, um, we don't have those issues. Those schools are getting a whole bunch of money. Uh, why aren't they doing better? Why isn't everybody doing better? Because communities that are doing well are doing well because of structural racism that was built into the magic of their doing well. Now, if you don't think that's true, think about this. I would recommend to you a book called The Color of Law. That book explains very well about housing, for example. You might have a great house and a great neighborhood, but there were structures that led to that. 
I might have an okay house in a poor neighborhood. There were structures that led to that. Why is it that some places you go to, the streets are great and all of the lawns are great? Because there were structures. You can go back to what this country was built on and understand there was separation that led to that. So that means automatically, automatically, there are going to be mo many neighborhoods who are in a position to do a whole lot better than others, and that leads to what happens to the schools. And that is one of the reasons we tried so hard to integrate schools so that kids get to know each other. So the other reason that schools are so important, public schools are so important, they were supposed to be that little petri dish where we learn how to live together. So the first time you go out in the world and try to be a part of this, dem this democracy, it won't be the first time you've seen somebody, for example, wearing a hijab. It won't be, be the first time you've seen somebody, for example, whose hair is like this and everybody's going like, oh, what happened to her? I, 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 and we can talk about this more, but that, that's really important. Like it's important for kids to see people like me. It's important for kids to see people like everybody in here because it's too late when we don't give them the absolute opportunity to learn this early on. Nine times out of 10, if we don't, they won't learn it or it's really hard for them to do. And the last thing I'll say about this is we assume that because some schools are great, some democracies are working well, um, that people who live there are okay. May I suggest to you, in so many ways, you're not. Because there is a price to pay when you're separated from people who are not like you. And I call that, you know, the, you know, it, it's, it's the, it, it's the, sub, it, it's the weight of privilege. It's the disadvantage of privilege. And we tend not to think about privilege as being a disadvantage. It is. Because the world you're preparing your kids for is not our world. They will be hugely disadvantaged in this world if we don't have good public schools. An opportunity for them to learn how to be among other people. Because when they go out into the world, they're not going to know what to do. No matter how much money they have. No matter how brilliant they are. Separation is a hideous, hideous thing. And it just stalks us. The result of it just stalks us, no matter how privileged you are, no matter how unprivileged you are. That's one of the reasons I've been so adamant about teaching and making sure kids understand this. I mean, it's just one of the best things in the world to get to teach kids to prepare them for our democracy. If you're not afraid to do the things kids need to know. So, all right. So I won't answer. No, that was good. I won't ask everything that long. Just no, get me started. Good. Start me up. <laughs> so for someone to say, you know, my kids don't go to one of the F-rated schools or whatever. My kids are in private school. My kids are in charter school. So why should I care? That's such a short-sighted view because the well-being of our city and the well-being of our schools are so intimately related. Yeah. And I have heard you say before, there's no such thing as other people's children. Right. Yeah. So as long as we care about the well-being of our city, 
as long as we want to attract good businesses, mm-hmm. as long as we want this to be a place where yeah. people can flourish and there's beloved community, mm-hmm. we need strong, vibrant public schools, yeah. period. Yeah, absolutely, because I, one of the things I never do, I never criticize a parent for whatever choice they make for their kids. That's not my business. I, even if I wish they made a different, uh, a different choice, I don't criticize them for it. But what I am critical of is the very thing you said, if you've made a choice for your kids and you go like, the rest of the people need to do what they need to do for their kids, that's a problem. Because I don't think there's anything as such thing as other people's kids. Because they're always going to be around your kids. I mean, think about this. Because we, 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 don't tend to, we tend to think we can keep them separated the way we did when they were little. But they deserve to be around each other. And so... If they are going to be, and let's hope they are, the notion that some people, some people will take the attitude, these parents just need to take care of their kids. I've, I've, I've taken care of mine. It's time for them to take care of theirs. Well, that's a true statement in a lot of ways, except that what if the parent is not doing it? What if the parent doesn't know how to do it? What if the parent has two or three jobs just trying to feed the kids and can't do it the way you've gotten a chance to what about that? And what about, though, the most important thing? No child, and you didn't either, gets to choose their parents. So if a child is not lucky enough to have you as a parent, or have somebody that is really, really good at this, or have the capability of doing it, that is where other people's children really should become your children. Because it is part, I think, of, you know, we sit here in a church, and I think a part of our faith would tell us that, that you don't just get to turn your back. And, and I know kids where it's not that their parents don't care and love them just as much as you do, but sometimes there are things that intervene. In my family, that was the case. My, my family was not involved in my education. You don't, don't think I just got here because everything was just rosy, rosy, rosy. There was not a day in my life anybody asked me about my homework because they were too busy just trying to live. And a kid should not get lucky. I was lucky. So were my brothers and sisters, because I was all over them. I was the adult, because I was number two in the family, and there were seven of us. And you know how the oldest person, who happened to be a girl, so she was the oldest, and she was a sweet, pretty miss, blah, 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 blah. If you're second, you know how that is. But I was just so adamant. I was grown before I should have been grown. I, I haven't had that much of a childhood, really, because I just saw things that were wrong and thought somebody should fix it. So for all my brothers and sisters, I was kind of like the parent who was there all the time. And we just got lucky that I was the one who, was, who had that kind of being about herself. But a lot of kids don't get lucky in any way. That is why it's important that they are your kids, too because they will be in this world with your kids. And unless you're gonna lock them up somewhere, we need to get on that for all kids. So before we dig into the specifics of the LRSD, let's talk about this on a more macro level. Mm -hmm. What have we seen in public schools in metro areas around this country of late? Uh, New Orleans is the city that first comes to my mind, but what what have we seen at a systemic 
30,000 foot level happening to public education in metropolitan areas? One of the things that's happened, you know, we got real uh, educationally religious back in the late 60s and in mid-70s in particular. We decided we were going to integrate our schools because that was the right thing to do. That was the right thing to do, although just think how far away that was from 1954. It took us a long time to decide it was the right thing to do. But most of that was not so much the right thing to do in our hearts as it was the, court, the courts said no. We really did mean this. You have to have kids go to school together. And so the only way we could get most of it done was through busing. Now you just ask yourself, why was busing the reason for our having to do that? It goes right back to the very thing I mentioned at the very beginning, the structures that we had in place that separated people. So people will say they want neighborhood schools and, and then people will say they want desegregated schools. But in most cases, those things don't go together because we don't live together. Because those very structures that privilege some over the other are still with us. So there was a big backlash to, uh, to integrating our schools. And so, and many people, not just because of busing, many because they just didn't want to go to school with one another. So there was a lot of white flight, like right, for example, right now, I live on purpose, you know, on Fair Park in that area. That area used to look very, very, very different. And then uh, some black people started moving in and people started moving out. Because generally, here's what happened, here's what your eyes tend to see. I read this research and I can't even find it, but I'm gonna put it on you anyway, because here's what generally happens. If it's an all-white neighborhood, when the population of people who are of color get to about 30%, people start to see double. Looks like it's more people than there are. And so people start moving. And people moved with their feet to cause us not to be able to have integrated schools. That happened all over the country. So it left our schools highly segregated. They have remained highly segregated. And what's happening at a 30-foot level right now all over the country, you pick a, pick a city that has a predominantly white, a, a predominantly black inner core, like Little Rock, predominantly black inner core of our schools, New Orleans, same way, Philadelphia, uh, Cleveland, Detroit, uh, and probably many other New Jersey schools like Newark and Camden and so forth. Um, those schools where people, as Chicago's another big one, where people have hollowed out the core and moved away from each other, then out to suburbs, the structures we have in place absolutely aided people to go out to the suburbs because what did we build? We built roads to get out to the suburbs. We built highways to make it possible. That's my money too, but that's what we did. You hear people from Benton and Bryant and Cabot all the time talking about they want some more highways. Uh, nobody said you had to move there. And I'm not, I, I, I'm not judging why they did. But when people moved out and start moving way west because they didn't want to have integrated schools and didn't want to live in an integrated neighborhood, 
So we leave what I'll just say, for lack of better terminology, in this case, a black or brown core. And then we start, the economic development engines start moving out. That happened big time to Detroit, for example, where all of those car companies, those uh, factories used to be in Detroit. They moved out to Warren and Plain Jackson, places like that, where, there were, where the people, the suburbia people were, and they got those jobs. And if you go back to what I said, if you find a struggling neighborhood, you're gonna find struggling schools. And this is gonna sound as if it's some kind of conspiracy, and I totally get it. But I can, I will say right here before God, it's not a conspiracy. But it's gonna sound like that to you because you've not been in this. Those poor kids are big business. So you move out, you leave people struggling, and then we start coming up with all these ways we're gonna label schools, and all of a sudden get religion about, we didn't want to go to school with those kids, but we'd sure like to see them have an opportunity. How do they get opportunity? And then we get even more religious and we go, my kid has such a great opportunity, I just want these kids to have an opportunity too. Well, that would be through charter schools. That's what's happening at the 30-foot level all around. We are closing a lot of black schools and brown schools, but predominantly here, black schools. We close those schools and we pass laws that said if you want to put a charter school in that same building we just closed, you can get it at a cheaper price than somebody who wanted to pay a higher price. And that's money people are making. Every charter school will tell you, we are not a for-profit school. Nobody opens a school unless somebody is making money. And then we just become, we take schools over. That's happened all over the country. Y'all can't take care of yourselves. Look at all the things that made it possible for people to be in that position to be taken over and treat people as if they really are second-class citizens. In the meantime, I go back to my school or wherever it is and um, everything is kind of normal. But this business of, we're doing it because we are so patriarchal and we can tell you what's best for you and for your kids and close your schools at will because that's what's happening now. Everything is set up for these kids, these schools to fail. And then somebody swoops in and makes money. You can count on that. And Walter Hussman knows I say these things about Walter Hussman and others. But we have people right here in our state who are huge in, in, the, in the business of these kids just need a chance. They don't just need a chance. That's not, education shouldn't be left to chance. We should be working together and everybody having equitable schools and opportunity. That's why you have to care about everybody's kids and not just yours. In other countries, that are doing really, really well in the, in the world, they start out thinking about everybody's kids and that every child is going to start off this basically the same way and that is prepared for school, not waiting until they get there. 
prepared for school and we will do what we have to do for those kids in their communities and wherever so that they will have an opportunity to do well in school. But all over this, all over this, 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 this country, we are disenfranchising people. Even right now, we have a proposal here in Little Rock that if we get our schools back, some people really won't get their schools back. So if you live in a predominantly white community, you will get your schools back with a, with a school board in some, in some fashion. Can you imagine in 2019, somebody has a proposal to say, some of y'all will get your schools back if you happen to be lucky and live in the right place? But if you happen to be unlucky, and in this case, this is predominantly struggling neighborhoods, which are predominantly black and brown, you might not. In 2019, that's happening everywhere. All you gotta do is check it out. The Google thing works great. You'll know I'm not making this up. Yeah. And the schools that have been shut down up to this point yes. are all south of 630. All schools. south of 630. Every one of them. All south of 630. And part of the reason we were told the schools had to be shut down because we have that word called in, in government, they are underutilized or they're or it's inefficient. Because one of the things the Constitution does say that we are supposed to, in addition to having an equitable education, it's supposed to be an efficient education. That means use our dollars as, as, as wisely as we, as we can. So part of the reason that we closed Franklin, which by the way is just right back of my house, we closed Franklin and we closed um, um, Southwest and um, uh, Wilson that we put something else in there. And now, we're, now we have on the list, we're gonna close some others. Um, so when, when they're, you know, when we, when we close these schools, that affects the neighborhood, that very much so. It affects the way people feel about their schools and their neighborhoods. And it, it, it affects when somebody says, this is an F school. Imagine what that's like for a child going to that school every day. And the fallacy in that is how you determine that it was an F school or even an A school. Don't think it's not junk science just because you might have an A on your school. That's junk science too. But what it does to a kid's mind is just something that is tattooed onto their brain. I remember being a kid that went to an, uh, a segregated school because I was not allowed to go to the other school. But here's the thing I've never gotten past of knowing I was not wanted in that school. But here's how I knew as a child I was not wanted in that school. My ride to school, by the way, and it's interesting, busing was not, busing was not controversial as long as we were using it to keep people separated and segregated. Y'all recognize that? It was not controversial. But at any rate, to go to my school, which was an all-black school, um, I had almost a two-hour bus ride every day. Nobody cared anything about that. I had almost a two-hour bus ride. There was a school about 10 minutes, if you drove slowly, from my house. And the bus would come by my house going to the all-white school, and I kept seeing these kids on that bus that looked like they were brown. I'm like, what is up with this? Where did they come from? 
And then, it, I, then I saw them one day. There was one Japanese family in our area. They were going to the white school. Because what it meant was, you could be something else, you just couldn't be black. I will never forget how I felt that, because I was thinking just if you had some kind of color, you couldn't go. But no, that was not it. You just couldn't go if you were black. And we were about the same color, actually. <laughs> but I happened to have grown, grown up around black people, so of course, obviously, you were black. You could be the color of Preston, but if you grew up around black people, you know, you were black, like the way my grandfather looked. So to, to, to do this to kids and then talk about adverse childhood experiences not recognize how that sticks to a kid. You know, I, was, I was about to say, I was, I was at the brand new school um, out in the Southwest, which is gonna be a hyper-segregated school. It is gonna be a hyper-segregated school right here in this city. It's gonna be all black kids and brown kids for the most part. But one of the things, um, one of the uh, architects was telling me, they brought some of the kids in from McClellan and Fair, because those are the kids, and the kids kind of felt like, they kept asking questions, like, like it's almost like, is this some kind of joke? Because they kept asking, is, is, is this for us? It, it, wait a minute now, is this for us? Something this nice? Because it's been tattooed onto their brain, by the way, we have let these structures maintain themselves. And we wonder why kids are angry. You wonder why they're not all happy and everything. Because the number of things we allow to still happen to kids is on us. So let's, let's bring it back to Little Rock. Mm -hmm. And I want to be sure that all of us hear the the narrative yeah. tonight of what's happened. So let's start in January of 2015. Okay. Uh, and let's go high point by high point of what yeah. we've seen happen and where we are now, mm. uh, why the LRSD is in the news yeah. well, why every day. Yeah, because we pass laws. This go, the laws go back, by the way, to the No Child Left Behind law, you know, the best law there ever was. <laughs> um, but... Um, the No Child Left Behind laws required the state to do certain things. And, uh, and part of that was if a school, we had to have school accountability. If the school was not doing well, then the state had to be responsible. And Lakeview said so as well. You have to make sure. So at any rate, there had, as part of this accountability thing, um, uh, somebody came up with labeling schools to say uh, A through F. And that if and this was put in the law, uh, the state law. Uh, if a school was an, a D or F or whatever, there were different things the state had the power to do with these, with these schools. And one of the things when it got to the F stage, and that time it was called distressed schools, that the state had the ability to take over the schools. Well, in Little Rock, um, 2015, January 28, 2015, at that time we had 48 schools. Um, six out of the 48, only six out of the 48 were labeled as F schools. The board, did, the State Board of Education did not have to take over Little Rock School District. They could have, and in my estimation, should have maybe dealt with the six. 
So in your mind, just sit there and think, so why in the world did they take the whole school? I mean, that's some pretty bad math. If you say the whole district is failing because of six, so like, like what, 88% are doing, just, you know? I wouldn't say everybody was doing just fine because there are certainly issues. So they took over the school, removed the school board, and, we, and to, to, to say, we're gonna do something about these, these six schools. The Chamber of Commerce came down and, and uh, uh, advocated for taking over the schools. We had somebody from Think Big Little Rock, I think it was, come, come down, it was the younger folks, you know, I think it was supposed to be thinking about the goodness of Little Rock, uh, asked to take over the schools. We had folks who were in the building industry, now you can just, you can just think money here, in the building industry who showed up because they build new schools and do, um, you know, whatever, um, maybe repairs or whatever, showed up to say, let's take over these schools. And at that time, the, the school board was predominantly African-American. I don't think you can just ignore that. These school uh, board members were told they were so dysfunctional they needed to be moved. All that time, we'd had school boards that were predominantly white, but had black members. But suddenly, everything was just, you just have to be moved. They had been in office about three months. So duly elected folks in this city were removed because of six schools. The whole point behind all of that was for the state to take over this school district and do with it what it wanted to. At the time when I was talking about we closed three schools because of efficiency and underutilized, we closed three schools and then we promptly opened three charter schools with fewer kids in each one of them than any of those schools. It was not about efficiency. It was about people who have an ideology, like the Walton Family Foundation, for instance, they do this work all, billions of dollars all over the country. I'm not saying they're racist, I don't know what their hearts are, but they sure have a blind eye to seeing what they're doing to our communities and to our kids, because people are making money. And some of these schools, are purchased by some outfit connected to the Waltons. So I buy the school, you open a school, and you pay me back, you know, because you're, you're renting from me. Can, can I pause right here? Yeah. Help us understand, this, this took me a second. Uh -huh. Why are foundations that have all the money they could ever want yeah. interested in public education? And you said it earlier, there's money to be made. Yeah. How is that so? Yeah, help, help how do they out. make money? Yes. Yeah. So um, about 10 years or so ago, um, uh, uh, Jim Walton and some others convened, uh, I only know this because, you know, they, it was, there was actually a tape of it there. They convened a meeting in New York City to talk about uh, schools and the hedge fund people, you, a lot of them in charter school business. And they talked about how public schools are kind of the last front frontier where there's guaranteed money to be made. That's the case for schools and prisons right now, where there's guarantee, because you're guaranteed you're gonna have some people in prison. So which is if, also in the news right which now. Which is also in the news, interesting. And so 
But they also said, and it may be true, that that's the egalitarian good thing to do to make sure kids have opportunity, because you're going to hear that a lot, that no kid should be stuck in a failing school. So one of the ways to get that kid out of a failing school is give them the opportunity to go to a charter school, which, by the way, there is no evidence for the most part that it just depends on the school that that's any better than um, a public school. But you can at the same time feel good about yourself, fulfill if it is something you deeply feel that the kids need this opportunity, and some people truly might believe this. I kind of think some of them do. And they've just decided that what they think is more important than those poor people out there who don't know what to do. So they can come in and say to a school district, you give us the money, we can, we can uh, run this school more efficiently, and generally that school is run by something called uh, a management team. So they come in and manage the school, and that's where people tend to get the money because we'll spend some enough on the, the kids to you know, say we've got a school. But people get paid, and the people who are running the school, the management team, will, will uh, get paid. And if you happen to be able to buy the building and have that same school with, with your money, pay the rent, and you're gonna, in the long haul, probably gonna, gonna make some money. Because you didn't have to pay, you're supposed to pay, for example, no matter who you are, um, the, the value um, of the school, uh, you know, and most times at a lower rate. But the school district and the taxpayers shouldn't really lose with that. Because, like I said, if you wanted to buy it and you're a charter person, let's say you're gonna, you, you offer, uh, $250,000. I can offer $400,000. You're going to get that school because you're a charter outfit. And so the ways of making money are kind of circuitous and hard for people to see. But if I'm the person who owns the management company that runs the school, I sell you my programs that I, that I have, you know, and I supply people to come in and, and do the day-to-day -day run of that school, and they're likely going to get paid more than the teachers who are there. They hire teachers who are not uh, certified, and they get all kind of waivers from the district so that they don't have to do a lot of things like the public schools do, like have a library, for, for example. Um, and uh, generally, the class, they get exceptions for class size and whether or not you're going to have counselors, how you're going to educate kids with disabilities or kids who are highly challenged. Those kids cost more money. They will generally be able to stay in that school until about October the 10th or whatever. That's about the time they can stay there because by then you have gotten the money for that kid. And then those kids many times get counseled out of that school, back to the public schools. But that money stays right there. It does not go back. So, and it's, I will tell you this. I know I can talk about this real fluently, and it didn't come easily for me. It took me a while to even believe this was the case. And that's why I always understand when people look at me and go like, you're crazy, you're making this up. I'm not. 
because charter schools were originally supposed to be run by, say, Little Rock School District will have a public uh, charter school. The point of those schools was for us to try and, and learn different things, do innovative things, so that then all the schools in the district could learn from that as well. That's not what we do anymore. It's, it was supposed to be about collaboration. We've turned it into competition. We should not have schools competing with each other. That's not the point of a public school. So the folks who say, this kid should have choice, which is the big thing. This, th these kids shouldn't be left in a failing school. Well, the problem with that is, what you're saying is it must be okay for some kids to be left in that failing school, because you're gonna get just some of them out. And so rather than do that, and just scatter our financial forces uh, uh, resources and any other kind of thing we're gonna do in the school, when we do that, we are, we are about the most we're guaranteeing anybody is mediocrity, about the most. And I know it's possible here in Little Rock, and I will never give up on this. I mean, I'm not just dead stuck on everything. I will collaborate and compromise if I have to, but I know we can have world-class schools in this city. If we would stop dividing ourselves and deciding that every one of us maybe can be inconvenienced a little bit, every kid in this city could get a world-class education. And I know what it looks like. I have studied it. I know what these kids deserve. And it's not hard to figure out as well. But I've spent my time studying this. And I know we can do it. But we can never do it as long as everybody else's child is not your child. That's the magic. And, and I think it's important, you know, there are many levels of conversation for this. One is the level of people doing what they think is best for their kids. Mm -hmm. But I think it's important for us to take a step above that and, re and recognize that there are big social mechanisms at play in public education yes. today. Mm -hmm. And we're fooling ourselves if we just turn a blind eye to that because we're going to do right by our kids and our kids alone. Yes, yeah, like yeah. there is big time money flowing into our city yes, right now right. that has to do with public education. That's right, right. And we need to at least know that and be aware of we that. Need, we should. And I may finish real quickly on what's happening because I got off on something else. So when the school was taken over and, you know, there's been, and what the law says after five years, you have to do one of three things, you have to, in essence, some kind of way, do something different with the school. You can annex it, but we're not in a position to do that. We can't do that because of the, loss, the um, uh, federal lawsuit. And, or you can uh, consolidate it. We can't do the, one of those things. Or you can reconstitute it. And that reconstitute just means put it back together in some kind of way, because you know, we're having a hard time with the definition of it in the law. So, so right now, the district, so we've had, we still have, the, we've got these failing schools, but the whole district is under the State Board of Education. The State Board of Education, I think, has gambled that we will continue with my kids, okay, forget about your kids, because when the schools were closed south of 630, nobody else in the city said anything, because it was not bothering their schools. And I think the I think the school the board I mean the state board has gambled that we are going to do the same thing this time if we have some schools here and some schools there, 
But one of the, as I tweeted the other day, one of the things I'm most proud of, of, of in Little Rock is the fact that we have a coalition of people on the north and south side of that interstate that are standing strong saying, do not divide our schools. That's never happened before to us like this. And they're standing strong saying it, and I'm inviting you to stand with us as well. Because I think they've figured if we just give the school back to the people who quote unquote really matter, they're not gonna, they're not gonna stand up for everybody else. But as it turns out this time, a whole lot of parents are standing up and saying, no, we will be one school district. We will not go back to 1957 and be segregated. Six to two years later, we are not going to do this. And the bottom line, <laughs> the bottom line, we need to have many, many, many more white people standing up and saying it. Because that's what surprises people. And I think white people ought to be insulted that people just assume that that's going to be okay. Because there's an assumed racism toward you. And, you know, I hate it when somebody assumes something to me. Like somebody comes to me talking some racist stuff. I don't care if there's nobody else around. I've made up my mind I'm not going to be a racist. I will talk the same way in public and in private. Otherwise, you need to check yourself. When you have to start looking around the room and go, who's here? Check yourself. I determined I am not going to do that. And the way I got there was I, you know, even after all of the stuff in the segregated schools, in the 10th grade, I was forced to go to an all-white school. And what was reinforced to me more than anything else is to never, ever, ever treat anybody the way I was treated. How do you experience that and then do it to somebody else? It's an awful thing. How do you see it, too? and be okay with it. Don't wait for it to happen to you. We really do a disservice to our humanity. And when we say, oh my God, I, I never knew it was like that, and then it happened to me. Why do you want to wait for bad stuff to happen to you? You can see and hear and, and, and have empathy and sympathy. But I learned not everybody gets that same lesson. Not everybody in my family got that same lesson. Because at, I was in the 10th grade, at semester, this was under school choice. We keep talking about choice, this was school choice. Because no white kids were asked to move. We've, I lived in South Arkansas, but there were about five all-white schools and one black school. And when we were integrated, what happened was, people just took like four or five, five or six families here of black kids and put them over here. We integrated all the, the little white schools. Not a single white child had to move anywhere. Not one. But at semester, because freedom of choice, you know, that meant, um, what that meant was, uh, you have the choice to go to this all white school. But when you get here, we will treat you so bad, you will make the choice to go back to where you were. That's what it meant. But technically, it meant the law. So at semester, the black, there were about six families at my school. It was a small school. We were, the principal and the superintendent called us all into the hallway for a meeting. Um, and what they told us, what they, I don't remember which one of them said it, that the school's been integrated, 
you may go back to your nigger school, and we expect you to. I was 15. And by then, I was fully grown. Uh, so in my own mind, I just thought, there's some reason they don't want me here. I'm, so I said out loud, I got in trouble a lot. I said out loud, I'm not going. And immediately I got hot and scared, and I got, because nobody else said anything. And I thought, oh my God, what if nobody else stays? <laughs> and now I've said it out loud, and I've got, and um, the bottom line is, those other families went back, and my family stayed. And that's where I learned so much. And one of the reasons I feel so strongly about kids having a chance to grow up around each other, those kids were only doing what they were taught to do. And they had never seen anything else. And it's a story I can't tell now. But in fact, when I get my book finished and out there, you can learn all about this story. But in fact, um, I didn't know I had become a target, and I had. Because the principal and the superintendent, the same one, had called one white boy into the office who was in my class. I got called in too and challenged for how I got these grades that I had because I was a, I was a good student because I knew my only way out is I had to get a scholarship. I didn't, we didn't have any money. But the, the boy who was going to be the, the salutatorian, when my grades came in, that was a threat. So they called that boy in. They called me in first and challenged me about how I got these grades and promised me I wouldn't get them at this school. They'd make sure of that. And then I learned later on when I'm graduated from college, they had called that boy in and told him, if you want to be the, the valedictorian as your own part to be, you better do something about that nigger Joyce Elliott. And he pretty much had free range to do something about that nigger Joyce Elliott. And nobody said anything to him. I may be sitting in class and something would fly by my nose. I could just think, thank goodness I have a small nose. Um, but I, I, that taught me so much. And when I became a teacher, I deliberately went to teach in a school where they'd never had a black teacher. Where they'd but that was just as important for those white kids in that school as it was for those black kids in that school. And that's what we forget. And it was a wonderful experience, because I had been there, done that, and I knew what to do and how to do it. Yeah. So about five minutes we have left. Mm -hmm. Right now, uh -huh. what's happening um, mm -hmm. is the, the situation's been tabled until the October meeting. Yes, until, until the October 11th meeting. So right now, at the, in the last meeting we went to, the, the board gave us this little framework about this is how we're going to do the schools, a framework on paper, and that's how we know there's a plan for some people and, and another plan for somebody else. And we've been pushing back against that, like I said, the folks north and south and wherever we can get people. We're going to go back to, this, to the State Board of Education on October the 11th, and at that meeting, is where they're going to make their decision of if they're really going to do this or not. The governor's for it, the state board of education people are for it. Um, and then, on top of all of that, um, at that last meeting, uh, out of the blue, uh, one of the board members made a motion that we're just going to 
get rid of the teachers union related to nothing. Just because I, somebody doesn't like unions. So that's causing another big stir because the teachers have already been treated less than professionals. Uh, a few months ago, the board decided that they were, you know, when you have a job and you have fair dismissal rights, the board decided to just take away those fair dismissal rights here in Little Rock, not the whole state. And they've taken over Pine Bluff too. So in Pine Bluff, they took away the teacher's fair dismissal rights. Related to nothing, there is other than I want to be able to just do anything I want without taking any responsibility for it. Because there is no research, nobody had any evidence that if we take away teachers' fair dismissal rights, things are going to be better. But I can do to them whatever I want to do to them, and they will have no rights. Two schools in this entire state that are treated that way. Two. And if, if the goal is to weaken public schools, uh -huh. that could be a way of doing that. that can weaken be a way of teachers' doing it. unions, yeah. which is a way of weakening yeah. the school yeah. altogether. Yeah. Uh -huh. So let's tie this up. Okay. What can we do yeah. in this situation? Right, what, what, yeah, what's an action yeah. item for us yeah. or two or three yeah. as we go forward? I, I would give you some action items. One is, unless you think this is okay, you know, and I'm praying, Lord, nobody does. Um, Unless she thinks it's okay, you need to let the governor know you don't think it's okay. The governor's number is 6822345. That's real easy. And they need to know. If it is possible for you to be at the board meeting on October the 11th, that starts at the board meeting, I think starts at 9 o'clock. Is it 10? 10? On the 10th? Okay. Is 11th on a Friday? Okay. Yeah. 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 Oh, I was thinking the 12th was Friday. Okay. So it's the 10th. If you can come to that meeting, please come and, and don't just be there. Come there and, and talk about how important it is that if this city is going to have a chance to grow, if we're going to have a chance to prosper, please speak up about we need to have a duly elected school board, one school district, not one that's separated, and that we will be operating under our democratically elected school board. The other thing, and Allie, will you tell me what that, what's that website where you can just go and you can just send a letter? Will you just say what it is? Everybody got that? Yeah. But here's something else you can do. I won't go through all of them because we have a lot of them. But here's something else that, that, that you can do. We don't want the school district back under our control just to have them. The other thing I would ask you to do is make a commitment to join us in making sure we have world-class schools all over this city. So make a commitment that you're going to do, and I can't go through all the things you would need to do right now, 
But if you just make a commitment, you're going to be a part of this. You're going to be a part of, of other people's children's lives. But the immediate thing, please contact the governor. Please show up at the state board meeting. That if you don't know where the board, where the Department of Education is, it's not hard to find. If you know where the Capitol is, it's just down west of the Capitol. And so on the 10th, and if you're just there to show up to faces they've never seen before, because they think you don't care. And they have every reason, I mean, this is not a criticism, but until they, you know, that we see faces of people we've not seen before, they just think, well, that's just Joyce Elliott again. And they can dismiss that. But they can't dismiss new faces that they're seeing. And, and say, oh, Tim, go ahead. Central, Central High School. Mm -hmm. So, as Joyce is saying, mm -hmm. it'd be a great way for the media to see some faces. The, yes. Yes. And support our teachers. Please support our teachers. Because, I mean, I love, love, love teaching. But it is hard work. And to, to be treated as if you, it doesn't matter if we have you or not have you, we'll go out and get a bunch of people who are not, because that's exactly what will happen if teachers are fired. They're going to get a bunch of people who are not um, uh, prepared to teach kids. Because we'll just say, just like in charter schools, you don't have to be certified. Just come on in and teach. So are these people going to get a chance to ask a question if they want to? What was There's that, Michelle? <laughs> Uh, it's, it starts at, does it start at 9 or 10, Ellie? You remember? I, it, uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They always start at 9. They do a bunch of other stuff and blah, 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 blah. But if you want to sit down, you probably need to be there before 9. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, Senator Elliott, I want to thank you for your time tonight, oh, but also how you champion our mm -hmm. schools and the work you do to make Little Rock beloved community. Oh, thank you and so, so much on behalf for of the church, me. we want to thank you for your work tonight. Yeah. Uh, would y'all join me in thanking Senator Elliott thank for her time? Thank you.